Welcome to the Wing Life Podcast, where we talk about wing foiling and the lifestyles of those who enjoy this great sport. Hey, Wyatt, thanks for joining us tonight. Looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, guys, stoked to be on. It'll be a fun little chat. I mean, uh, the winging is, is going big, exploding everywhere we look. Yeah, absolutely. Where are you right now? Yeah, I'm down in uh, La Ventana, Baja, Mexico. So I've got a uh, brand manager in charge of wing and windsurf at Slingshot. And for the last 13 years, I had a windsurfing resort down here in La Ventana that uh, became a windsurfing and windsurf foil resort. And now we have just tons of people doing wing too. So yeah, last 13 years, I spent my whole winters down here and I have a uh, you know, a whole bunch of a big compound with accommodation and uh whole day you walk down to the beach and there's just massive sprawling gear sheds with, you know, 20 different wing boards and 40 windsurf and windsurf foil boards. And uh everybody comes, they shows up and we have an open bar and cars and quads and all the gear. And uh yeah, so we basically show people a good time here from November on till we're actually closing up this weekend, uh the first okay. of April and uh yeah, very cool and, and for everybody listening that's a little bit more international maybe not from north america can you give us kind of the because it's leventown is kind of a mythical spot for the north american wind community but for everybody listening from around the world can you tell us a little bit about the conditions and what's happening down in baja yeah exactly so baja's you know it's a thin peninsula that sticks uh it's mexico but it sticks down from san diego in california and uh you know, I actually was traveling in Europe in Tarifa for the last GWA contest there in October. And all the people I met there knew about La Ventana and they were like, oh, yeah, it's like the Tarifa of North America, which is is sort of true. It's the main uh, it's definitely the most popular wintertime wind destination in North America. And it's the Sea of Cortez. So, you know, we get uh, it's not open ocean swell. It's a thin, narrow sea. Um but we're just kind of perfectly set with this big island that sits like 10 kilometers off the shore and lines up to just funnel in the north wind like crazy and so it blows 20 knots here almost every day from november on until the end of april and uh it's really easy for everybody in north america to fly here because cabo san lucas is the big vacation destination in southern baja which is two hours away okay and so the flights are really subsidized into there there's flights from everywhere you know direct flight from everywhere in the united states into cabo san lucas so we send people we send a shuttle to pick people up at the airport drives them two hours here and then it's just a cool little uh one road town there's just one paved road in town dotted with different uh restaurants and and uh stores and yeah i mean on a on a normal day in the peak season in december january you'll stop counting kites and wings at like 400 and just give up so like every day there's like 400 Ooh. people in water but the you know the beach is like 10 miles long so they're spread out along that 10 mile beach but yeah i mean on a on any given day there's three to four hundred people easily and so there's not that many europeans though down here i mean it's really tends to be canada you know north america um but yeah traveling to traveling to europe in the fall it was amazing the difference over previous years i've been there where how many people knew about la ventana i'd be like hey I'm, i live in baja in the winter They're like oh la ventana you're like yeah totally nice and then for 
just before we started uh, our little chat now, Wyatt was telling us how he's super stoked to go explore to the Pacific side for the waves. And I, I feel very strongly about that area. And Luke and I actually have gone there together and I've been there many times. Uh, do you want to give the topo for what's happening on the Pacific side uh, in, in terms of the wind sports scene? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, the, the Baja is a really narrow peninsula and where we are right here in La Ventana is actually basically the, the narrowest part. It's only as the crow flies like 35 miles over to the Pacific side. So we can reach a few different surf spots on the Pacific side in an hour and a half from here on the Sea of Cortez side. Um, you know, we're on the east side to go to the west side would be, yeah, like an hour and a half. And uh, we actually have a bunch of spots over there that uh, we went and filmed like the Slingwing V3 hard handle video over there. We had like an epic barreling day and brought the jet skis and the wind was blowing offshore. Um, but you're actually yeah. able to like get up in almost straight offshore winds and get into the waves and ride. But you've got just endless really uncrowded middle of nowhere spots on the sea of cortez or sorry on the on the pacific side so in todos santos maybe a little bit to the south there's not much wind and there's some you know hotels and things to stay there but from from that point all the way north for 500 miles there's really not much as far as place to stay or buy food or anything so there's just these point break after point break and beautiful uncrowded beaches that uh you can just show up with all your camping gear and the wing gear and uh hopefully have a jet ski too and it's it's pretty incredible nice. i mean not many places in the world where you can go winging you know barreling point break with nobody else around for miles it's it's pretty special here it's really untouched and there's the thermals that fire all summer you know that so it's just, it always lines up perfectly side or side offshore with endless point breaks, as you're saying. It's just a crazy, crazy place. Yeah, exactly. Especially in the spring. So the springtime, you have the northwest winds are cranking on the coast and you just have wind most days over there, especially for winging. You know, you can kind of always get out. But uh, yeah, cool. especially in the springtime. I mean, that's, we're just closing up our resort right now. We're just so excited to go winging on the, on the Pacific side because you can just pull up and camp for you know as long as you want and uh the northwest wind just keeps cranking so we'll go to like really famous spots maybe five hours north of here is like one of the most famous uh surfing spots in the world uh scorpion bay and uh it's like six different mm -hmm. points it's just a huge point that kind of makes six different points and uh i mean you can ride a wave for like a mile and a half there and uh nice. there's actually some industry there as far as uh you know places to stay and stuff but hard to get to nice. so you don't have many crowds down here hey tom we drove by there are we on our way to punta and stuff no we didn't go quite as far down as scorpion bay no? but i have been okay. down there and it's uh it's insane like winging didn't exist when i was there but i can see that wave just being phenomenal on a wing we tried to windsurf it and it was just you know just a little too fluky of wind um it worked but the inner points which are cleaner were just not really happening for windsurfing but on a wing that would be unbelievable and you know luke you, we we spent a lot of time in in san carlos together if you think of the waves you saw in san carlos they're messy compared to um scorpion bay like it's redonkulous how consistent that break is and how perfect like it's amazing oh nice nice so how long are you guys going for what uh i mean from here it's like a five-hour drive so basically we'll we'll okay. stay here at home with all the luxuries and then as soon as we yep. see a big south swell from like 180 to 210 degrees 
we just drive up there and uh you know stay for the swell stay three four or five days and then when it peters out kind of come back home chill for a little bit and keep watching the forecast so you know we can go up there it, it's a pretty specific uh swell direction for scorpion bay but then if we also drive you know two hours back towards the airport in cabo you have what they call the east cape east cape of baja and that will really accept any direction of south swell and the crazy thing about the east cape is it'll blow from two different directions in the same day so you can be like riding waves sure. with the wind blowing from the south in the morning and then you'll okay. see this line from the north kind of battling with that south wind midday and the south wind will die out and you'll have wind from the north that you know 15 to 20 knots uh in the afternoon so we'll go there and you know wing and it, i've literally winged in completely different wind directions with good waves in the same day it's it's a total trip so it's basically right at the point of baja like the southernmost tip so right where the okay. sea is hitting the pacific and you know there's, there's a lot of variable conditions there but yeah to be in a place where you can ride two completely opposite wind directions <laughs> the same day the same break is it opens up a lot of possibilities it really helps you explore the the wave there oh yeah no for totally. sure Totally. So for, for people that are listening and don't know why it is a pro windsurfer, um, and I'm kind of curious to hear why, how much windsurfing are you doing these days ever since uh, wind foiling and now obviously winging has come into the picture? Uh, I actually do, do a lot of windsurfing. So, so yeah, I, I was a pro windsurfer in college and growing up and, uh, and I, I mean, it's, I still really like to do the old fin, fin windsurfing. I kind of have, and, and down here in my resort in Baja, right. I have like all of my sails rigged and all of, you know, my wing board is sitting there on the rack on the beach. And, you know, I have a whole bunch of staff who blows up all the wings in the middle of the day. So it's really easy just to take whatever I want. I'm completely spoiled. Um, but generally my rule of thumb is like, if, if I can be on like a 4.4 meter sail, so it's blowing like 25, I'm regular mm -hmm. fin windsurfing. And then if I've got to be on a 5.0 or something bigger, I'm pretty much winging at that point. Um, and then I, yeah. when I get a little bit of board winging, I switch it up to the windsurf foiling <laughs> and do some good crashing for about an hour, trying to figure it back out again. Um, nice. It's, <laughs> It's pretty funny. You like wing for a week and then you go back to windsurf foiling and you can't do it at all and vice versa. Like I'll be like, okay, this week I'm super into windsurf foiling and I'll do it great. And then I'll go out and try to wing and land my 360s and 720s. And I'm just like crashing left and right. It's like, it's kind of, I find it kind of hard to keep up with all, all three sports. You know, it's, uh, it's a challenge, totally, but it's totally. fun because I can get a little bored of one for a week and then I'll yep. get super into one of, you know, the other sport for a week. But the the transition between the two is definitely not seamless. <laughs> yeah, I don't that's doubt, really man. interesting. I think there's probably not many people that have uh, the luxury that you have to ride so often in very similar conditions and be able to compare the three sports in similar conditions mm. and to be able to kind of bounce back and forth and be like, yeah, it's actually kind of hard to bounce back and forth. I definitely had that impression as well, uh, going from you know, winging to windsurfing, it's a totally different ball game. And then windsurf foiling is kind of a hybrid, I guess, between the two in some ways. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're definitely, you know, way different. And, you know, so we have everything at my resort here, right? So we have regular windsurfing with fins. We have windsurf, a whole rack of windsurf foil boards. And then we have a huge rack of wing foil boards. And, uh, 
you know, everybody's always, we have a lot of windsurfers who are transitioning to wing here and brand new wingers learning wing. And everybody's kind of asking me like, well, you know, what's the advantage of one or the other? And, you know, I, I think it's just really clear with winging and how much winging is taking off. It's just on, and on the windsurf board, you're not, you're standing all the way outboard, like all the way on the rail and way at the tail. So you're not standing in the right place to really ride swell. Whereas when you're winging, you're, you're standing like dead center in the middle of the board, exactly where you would be if it was a surfboard and you were surfing a wave. So you're just standing in the correct place to really take advantage of riding bumps and riding swell and carving. Whereas windsurfing, you're kind of, you know, outboard and in, in a strange place on the board. So I think winging is taking off like crazy because it really is the best vehicle for riding swell, you know, more so than, than the windsurf foil. I really like the windsurf foil for, you know, blasting oh, back totally. and doing, you know, jumps and all the, the spinning tricks. But as far as like really riding swell, I like love that aspect about windsurf foiling in the beginning before wing came out it was like, it was really fun mm -hmm. to ride swell, but you find yourself like, having to lean so far forward and just not standing in the right place in the board. Whereas now with the advent of, of the winging, you're just standing exactly where you would be if you were a surfer and you can really take advantage of, of the foil and the rails and the swell and because of where you're standing on the board. Totally. That really, really echoes my uh, feelings as well. I remember when windsurf foiling came out, um, I was riding your foils, actually the infinity 76 a lot and stuff like that. And because I was living in Montreal at the time, so you don't, we don't really have access to good waves. We only have swell most of the time. And I remember just being so stoked on being able to ride these tiny little bumps and go front side on them and, you know, have a great time on these tiny things. And then the second I got on a wing board, I was like, man, windsurf foiling is dead for me. Like, it's never going to be the same. <laughs> You're just standing in the perfect place, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Like windsurf foiling on a three seven, I found was pretty fun for for a while until I started. I was flagging out the sail all the time. Look at the surf, and yeah. then but a couple of buddies on Vancouver Island that like they love windsurf foiling, and they're gonna do it forever. They haven't even switched over to winging, but they do like the hooked in kind of blasting a bit more feeling. So it goes along with their style of riding. But yeah, I think. Oh yeah, totally. Just to clarify that, I think I, I totally agree with you, Luke. Like, uh, windsurf yep. foiling for me was no longer interesting because I'm just interested in surfing things. In surfing, yeah, me of, too. Yeah, but the part of, you know, as you said... This episode is brought to you by Saladita Kite School in Laventana, Mexico. If you caught some of our uh, stories yesterday on Instagram, you'll have seen that. I just got in a couple epic days of downwinding. We got a 10 kilometer downwinder done with my buddy mickey from salt spring island today i got in an epic one with my friend Britt. um we went from latuna all the way to the beach and back um heck of a fun time if you're looking to learn there's nothing better than getting a lesson from the pros at saladita kite school they are positioned at latuna and now that i've been here a little while i've gotten the opportunity to visit to a couple different spots it is one of the more beginner friendly beaches with some nice sand so you're not walking on any rocks. Um, they do offer professional jet ski assisted kite and wing foil lessons. Um, so once again, they're at La Tuna. So if you want to grab a beer after, grab some ice cream, grab anything, it is a nice little hub there. So you're not just stuck kind of in the middle of nowhere. 
So they have you covered if you want to learn how to kite, foil, or looking into downwinding. They got top quality gear as well. Uh, so don't hesitate. Book your lessons today by visiting saladitalaventana.com or send them a message on Instagram at Saladita Kite School. At Saladita Kite School. Saying that people that enjoy blasting around, you know, throwing down race drives and stuff like that, that's way valid. And that's a totally different ballgame. And Windsurf Foiling is amazing for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just like you were talking about there, like the ability to, uh, to completely get rid of the power. Like we've seen that as a, you know, we're hand slingshot and, and watching a lot of the kiters, especially in the gorge and down here in Laventana, like so many of the good young kiters switching over to wing foiling because they can actually get rid of the power. So when you're, when you're kite yeah. foiling, you know, you, as soon as you dive the kite, you're right to speed. The, the kite is really hard to completely get rid of the power in the kite and just focus on riding the swell because they are standing in the right place on the board and their boards are extra small which is great but they can't quite get rid of the power in the in the kite to focus on the swell ride kind of the same way uh windsurf foiling you know yeah you can dump power better than a kite can Mm -hmm. but the ability to flag the wing out and just completely get rid of the power in the wing and focus on your swell ride that's that ability to ditch the power is what's brought so many of the kite foilers over to wing is because they're just like, man, I was so into prone foiling because I didn't have this annoying power in the kite. And now with winging, I'm able to achieve that same thing where I have no power in the wing, no power in the kite and can just focus on riding the foil. as well. Totally. Have you kite foiled Luke? Um, No, no, I haven't kite foiled. But my brother does, and I've seen him learning his little Bronco. I think he had like a 600 or a 700, and it took a while for him to get that little race foil going. I think it took him 10 hours, actually. But um, even him, he's a really good kiter, and he's still like that. You'll still get some slack line going, obviously, if you catch up and stuff to it. But that that's the fun aspect of winging and and windsurf. And actually, Wyatt, I was kind of curious. There's a lot of new people coming into wind sports that were never into wind sports before. So do you want to go a bit into how you got into the kind of wind life? And I'm sure they would love to hear a bit about your story. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I grew up in Berkeley, California, which is, uh, you know, San Francisco Bay Area. We're just on the east side of the bay. Like if you took a boat from the from the Pacific Ocean and drove right under the Golden Gate Bridge and just kept going straight, you'd run into the Berkeley Marina, which is where I I learned to windsurf as a kid. Um, you know, my dad was, uh, was a windsurfer. So I really wanted to do it when I was a little kid and they had a good, uh, kids camp there run through the university. And then I ended up, you know, working for the kids camp and running the kids windsurf camp there. And, uh, then I had, you know, what really, what really makes you, you know, excel at any of these sports is riding with people who are better than you and also having Mm -hmm. kind of age mates that help push you. So I, you know, at like 15 or 16, I was, you know, a good enough windsurfer to, to sail everywhere. But then I had a core group of friends, Rob Warwick, and then the Poor Brothers, uh, Tyson Poor, who's my business partner down here. And the four of us just, you know, anything you can do, I can do better. Um, if one guy would learn something, everybody else would kill themselves trying to learn as fast as they can. And so we really nice. met each other there and we we're doing all the competitions. So, you know, eventually the four of us are, you know, pretty much the same skill level. So then you travel to, 
you know, we would spend six months in in uh, Bonaire to ride with the Franz brothers because they were just, you know, one level up than us. And then, you know, you go to uh, Margarita to ride six months with Guido Estrado because he was, you know, those guys were all like six months or one season better than us. And uh, it was really important to travel and, and ride with somebody who's better than you. I mean, that's that's how you get good. You can't, if you're the best guy in your pond, you're not going to increase your skill level very quickly. Whereas if you can travel somewhere where people are better than you, you learn a lot just by following right behind, seeing the exact wind angles people take into a move. And you just, you can pick up on the minute little details there. And so, yeah, and I moved to the, we all moved to the gorge and lived in our vans, uh, trying to be pro windsurfers as broke college kids. And, uh, and then from there, we wanted a place to train that was, you know, in the middle of the winter. And uh, La Ventana is really the only, it's the only midwinter high season windy spot, right? So like there's nowhere else in North America where you can go. Like the Caribbean doesn't count, like even Brazil. I mean, that's South America, but still Brazil is like October, September to December. But if you're talking about your high wind season is November to March, midwinter, there's no other place in the Northern hemisphere, really, that that's like the main high season. Whereas in La Ventana, that's our, our peak season is December, January, February. Um, so we would come down here and you can drive all your toys. So we'd come down here for yeah. a break and train here. And then uh, spend so much time here that uh, I bought property while it was cheap. Um, and town was like, there was, when I moved here, there was two restaurants in town. And if you can even call them restaurants. And I just looked yesterday at our, our local little guide and there's 72 restaurants in this town. So got some property. Oh, while wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is my 20th year anniversary in this town. So I hey, came congrats, man. for the first time, drove my van down in college 20 years ago. And uh, a few years later, got some property and just watched it totally explode. Now we have yeah, from two restaurants to 72 restaurants and, uh, and, you know, set the place up here. And then in 2018, uh, wind, wind foiling was starting to become a thing and i took a job at brand manager for wind foiling at uh, slingshot to run their program there help you know basically help design the products work with the designers and the engineers and then do everything from bring you know bring it to market i write all the website copy i manage the photo shoots i you know manage the team riders hire the team riders and then in 2019, basically, we had started getting into the the wing foiling and they were like, you guys, you want to be the wing foil guy? And I was like, well, it's pretty much just windsurfing, right? I mean, the two sports are so close. And I was like, sure, I'll be the wing foil guy. Little yeah. did I know at that moment that it would become like 90% of my job and windsurfing would be <laughs> 10% of my job. But uh <laughs> Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy watching that happen. I mean, Tony Lagos, who's one of the founding brothers of Slingshot, was the first guy to make a wing. Like he was the first the first guy to make an inflatable wing back in 2015. Um, and there's a funny story behind that. But you know, basically everybody at Slingshot this is you know three years before my time in 2015. But uh, he couldn't sell the rest of the team on it. Everybody's like, "Ooh, I don't know," you know. And it wasn't until um, you know, he developed prototypes, showed it, made it work, proof of concept. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, Nash and F1 and everybody's, you know, everybody got, everybody in the industry talks, everybody gets word that these guys are going to produce wings that we were like, 
oh, we better get that thing off the shelf that we made them can three years ago and start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no way. Yeah. So was yeah. he was he making that in the context of the foil? I guess the foils were already a thing at that point. Foils were just barely a thing. So he he uh, <laughs> the first idea that they had was um, you know Tony made this wing. And he was first riding it on like a, like a seven foot surfboard. So we've got photos of Tony in 2014, 2015 in the gorge with a wing with like a, a stand up paddle sticking out of the back. Um, that was, you know, it was the first boom <laughs> wing. Right. And he's like yeah. fully blasting across the water on a surfboard and like catching little jumps. Um, and so like the idea back then was that, that we would sell it to the SUP market. Cause you imagine like 2015, like supping is going like through the roof. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So you sell the SUP market and when everybody went out supping and then the little wind came up, all of a sudden riding a SUP isn't very much fun. So they could take this, you know, wing out of their backpack and pump it up and ride on a SUP. And, uh, and kind of right after that point, he was also getting pretty into the windsurf foiling and he developed foils for, uh, Slingshot's really big, like top two, three companies in the in in Wake, which a lot of people don't realize. Like we're huge in Wake, um, hmm. and Cable Park especially. Uh, make all the Cable Park boards. Tony invented the first flex Cable Park Wake boards that you could do all the like nose presses across the um, the features and really hit the ramps with. Because um, before that, Wake boards were really stiff. But uh, okay. That was the whole idea was it was going to be a sub thing. And then he was windsurf foiling. So he started doing it on his windsurf foil board. And uh, yeah, he posted a a photo on um, sailing anarchy is like a a sailing Facebook page with like a million followers. And he posted his first foiling wing photo on somewhere like he's like oh i posted on instagram and i had like you know 150 followers back then like instagram wasn't really that much of a thing in 2015 and then somehow it made it onto this facebook page sailing anarchy which has a lot of followers and he's like and from that moment on my phone was ringing off the hook everybody in maui was calling me like you got to get me one of these things how do i get one he's like i have a bunch of like crappy prototypes you know that i've like hand sewn and and cut together like I don't have that many. I can send you one too, but he's like, from that moment on is the phone was ringing off the hook. And that's when he came back to, to everybody else's slingshot and was like, we really have to do this. And even then, you know, that we didn't buy into it. Well, you bought into it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys are full fledged into it now. And I think it kind of blindsided a lot of the industry. I remember talking to owners of shops, uh, wind shops and, in Quebec kind of just as it was coming out and he's, and, and the owners were like, what is this thing? Like, why? We already have kiting. We already have windsurfing. We have kite foiling, windsurf foiling. We really need another sport. And I think it just, it's different. <laughs> so much better in, in its own way, you know? Yeah. I mean, to me, it really, uh, you know, it, it's basically like, you know, kiting hammered windsurfing because it was so much better in, a lot of really good points, right? It's like easier to learn, shorter learning curve, easier to travel with and go in lighter winds. And then wing foiling came and it was like, wait, 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 wing foiling is hammering kiting because it's the same way. It's like Mm -hmm. easy to travel with, even easier learning curve, less scary, can go in lighter winds, you know, and it it, it just. And launch by yourself. You're not going to, you know, 
kill yeah. somebody if you mess up. It's uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, if you if you build it, they will come, right? It's like if you make it easy, people will do it. And so we just came out with a sport that's way easier than windsurfing, way easier than kiting, and the learning you know the learning curve is short, and people are just jumping on it. So um, at your resort, you're obviously there in the fall. You've seen how busy are you with wing lessons and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot a lot of lessons and a lot of learning going on. Um, you know, we'll we'll set people up with kind of like jet ski lessons in the morning if they've never foiled before to uh, to get them to understand the crazy bucking bronco that is foiling, right? Like if you've never ridden a yeah. foil before, it's just such a foreign concept and it's so sensitive that even if you've done other board sports, you're used to like what it feels like to set a rail on skis or a snowboard or a surfboard, but like until you've ridden a foil, you just don't really understand how sensitive and how little input you need to give it to get, you know, a lot of, a lot of turn out of it. So yeah, we'll set people up with that in the morning. And then uh, it's just a nice sandy beach. So people can do the walk of shame, right? I mean, we'll, we'll help them out a bit, but yeah, you kind of walk it up wind a little bit and go out and try to stay up wind and come down. But you know, it was, it was funny. It was, ex it's basically exactly the same as what happened with windsurf foiling. So we had a windsurf resort, the first year we had windsurf foiling, we had all the gear there. Nobody wanted to do it. The second year we had wind foiling, people would like kick the tires a little bit and like look at it and be like, mm, maybe if it's not very windy, I'll, I'll try it. You know, and they're kind of kicking the tires and a few people did it. And then the third year people were emailing and calling specifically to come because we had windsurf foil stuff and it was the exact same thing. So that was like three years. And then the next three years okay. was, uh, was wing foiling first year had all the wing foil stuff nobody would touch it second year they're kicking the tires like well maybe and people were learning third year i mean now everybody's coming to wing foil and even all our longtime mm -hmm. wings are all getting into wing foil it's just you know everybody it's the same thing that happened with kiting right everybody windsurf for 20 years and then kiting came along they're like oh let's do this new thing kiting and now everybody's been kiting for 20 years and so they're like yeah. oh let's try this new thing wing foiling but it was interesting to see that it took three years of you know two years of tire kicking before everybody jumped wholesale in on it and now i mean you know on the lighter wind days i mean there's just as many as many wingers out there as as kiters in the really light days on the on the windy days there's definitely a lot of kiters down here yeah no for sure all, all of my friends like i've worked for well i subbed myself out to elevation kiteboarding so they're teaching probably just up the beach from you and stuff. And, and okay. yeah, just the whole, the, even the massacators on, on Van Island, a lot of them are just switching over, trying different things, safer launches, all that kind of thing. But it, it's kind of, it's cool to see that kind of progression and kind of reinvigorates people as well. Right. Like after the same sport for a while, it's kind of neat to see them hop on something else. Which is interesting, but there's also like, uh, you know, you're going to see a glut of equipment for cheap this summer mm -hmm. and spring because there was a, the whole industry made a little bit of a mistake in, um, you know, during the COVID everybody, you know, there was this huge demand and all the whole industry was like, Oh my gosh, like we can't produce enough gear. Like this sport is exploding like crazy. You know, it's the new gold rush, but kind of what happened is the, is that the end a lot of, you know, basically every company in the industry mistook scarcity for demand. So mm. it, it wasn't exactly that there was all this demand. It was just that I was calling one shop looking for a board and they didn't have it. And then I called a second shop and then I called a third shop and no one had it. And I called a fifth shop. 
So all of a sudden you have a single customer calling eight retailers looking okay. for a product. And so when, you know, when we're seeing those numbers and that interest, the whole industry thought, oh my gosh, like demand is, is sky high. In actuality, it was just one person calling eight or 10 shops, right? So, you know, everybody- so A bunch of touch points. A bunch of touch points. And so yeah. you, you, there's a demand, but really it was the scarcity. It wasn't the demand. And so, you know, every brand ordered too much stuff and every store ordered too much stuff. So um, it's going to be, it's going to be a dog eat dog world out there going into this summer as far as uh, prices. Gear goes. Okay. Gear goes. Okay, yeah, that's, that's really, that's really interesting to hear because I was, um, I'm not working in a shop currently, but I was in the beginning in those early COVID years. And as you're saying, it was just madness. You know, everybody was trying to get stuff you you know you, you if you could just get a board or get a wing or get a foil you're like okay i'm getting this i don't care if it's not what i want i just want something and it seemed like this bubble is never gonna burst you know it was just going and going and going and it's interesting to hear that now it's kind of burst uh and that the supply has caught up finally with the demand and almost surpassed it from what you're saying it's gonna be interesting to see how everything adjusts and goes from there but yeah do, i mean do you find do you think that the numbers of uh, wingers are still growing, or do you think there's we've hit some sort of a plateau with number of wingers? No, no, you know the numbers are still growing. I actually uh, in the in the GWA, so the Global Wing Surfing Association, um, we, you know, all the top brands submit our sales numbers to the GWA, who then takes them and anonymously combines them and then spits it back out to all of the member brands so that we can, you know, everybody, it's in everybody's best interest to have an idea of where the, the market's going, you know, our board selling a lot, foil selling a lot, you know, are the sales in North America here and Europe here, is it vice versa? So um, we just received that information today. So we all submitted our information to GWA, they took it all anonymously, combined it, sent it back out and, haven't I should have done a little more homework this morning because that email just came in today. But uh but it's yeah, I mean it's still growing, but we still have to remember that you know being on a crazy windy beach is not where all the eyeballs and the people are necessarily. Mm -hmm. So it is still a totally. and uh and will it jump the chasm? And so there's kind of a, a lot of studying we do at Slingshot, which is like, um, you know, we have early adopters and there's a lot of early adopters now, but there's this big chasm between early adopters and uh, sport really hitting the mainstream. So windsurfing okay. jumped that chasm, right? In the 80s and the 90s, you know, 80s and early 90s, Windsurfing went from, you know, a little fringe sport and it fully jumped the chasm into a hundred percent mainstream sport. Like everybody was windsurfing in 1989, Neil Pride sold a million windsurf sales and around the same year, one in three European households owned a windsurfer, right? So that's clearly mm -hmm. jumped the chasm into a mainstream sport. Kiting never did oh, yeah. that, right? Kiting never jumped to the chasm from a fringe sport to a mainstream sport. Stand up paddle did, right? So stand up paddle, yep. you know, was, was pretty damn fringe. And right now, do you know anybody who hasn't been on a stand up paddle board? Like, probably not. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. So, so windsurfing did, kiting did not, 
stand up paddling did. And what we'll find out in the next two to three years is if, you know, winging is going to be like kiting and not jump that chasm from early adopter fringe sport to mainstream, or if it actually will. Okay. You, uh, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on this. So I have a guess as to why those sports did jump the chasm and why they didn't. But why do you think that happened? You know, uh, with with windsurfing, it was just, it was kind of the first extreme sport. And there was such a big sailing culture, especially in Europe, that this was like a smaller sailboat that a family could throw on top of their car and get somewhere. So I think it really, it jumped the chasm because A, other than skiing, which had such a history, it was hardly an extreme it's an extreme sport now, mm. but you know, it wasn't considered this crazy extreme sport, right? Because it had such a long history. Whereas windsurfing had such a short history that it was considered the first crazy extreme sport and the sailing culture kind of augmented that. And then supping, you know, anybody could do it anywhere. Mm. And it was more fun to stand up and look around than it was to sit hunched over in a kayak. Right. So you just, you had this, you know, kayak sales and kayak world. And all of a sudden you had, you know, a better version of that that anybody could do at any place. Whereas kiting, it's not like you can do it anywhere at any place. And it had the risk factor involved. So it didn't really jump the chasm. I mean, it's, it's a lot to ask to attach yourself to a 2000 pound traction kite. <laughs> yes. For a lot of people that won't go near it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think just before we get to one game, I think that's uh, that's uh, pretty close to my thoughts as well. And I think, as you're saying in the beginning, windsurfing, there was kind of a sparsity. There wasn't really any, you know, outdoor extreme sport that you could do. Mountain biking didn't exist. Skateboarding wasn't really a thing. You know, there's just not really other options. And there was a huge sailing culture. And it was super accessible at first. You know, like you had one board, one sail. You just uphaul the thing and you cruise around. It was a low performance sport at the time. And anybody could do it. And I think paddle boarding, as you're saying, is again, it's a simple thing. You have one paddle, one board, you hop on the water and you enjoy any conditions basically, and everybody can do it. Whereas windsurfing as we know it today and kite surfing as we know it today are by default high performance sports. You have to have some sort of level of understanding of wind. You have to have some sort of know coordination some strength and all these things and some risk is involved in it because it's a high performance sport so what's going to be interesting is if we manage to market winging as a non-high performance sport and i think if we manage to do that then it'll jump that chasm but if we don't i'm not sure it will what do you think yeah you're 100 right i mean we've been working hard on that in at slingshot like you know developing the you know, we, like I, we developed the, the sup winder, right? The stick on keel fin. So you already have a sup, you're a little bored of supping hundred bucks. You get this big old stick on keel fin, put it on your, the sup or the five sups you already own, and then just buy a wing and do this low performance sport, you know? So yeah. right after we came out with that, I started seeing those and, you know, on boats in the Caribbean and, uh, you know, we've worked hard on that and like the, our new LTF board, the learn to fly, right. It's like an inflatable and it comes with, and it's got a carbon plate on the bottom that'll take a foil. And so it comes with twin fins that you can put in the foil track. And then in front of the foil track, it's got another, like an A-box slot for the big sup keel fin. So it comes with twin fins and a keel fin that you can use 
for, you know, riding it without a foil and learn. And that's what we teach people on down here in La Ventana. And then okay. you can also use it for foiling. So we're definitely trying to court that. I think, uh, right. you know, it's, it's still, you know, wind sports still take a bit of perseverance, right? You still have to be a bit eager to learn it, to push all the way through. Um, I think the real boon that we're going to see, or like, I think our kind of our best chance at jumping that chasm in, in uh, winging is that the dang sport, like it's so much easier and everything just works better and more seamlessly when you're under a hundred pounds, right? Like mm -hmm. so easy for a kid to learn. Like, first of all, they have so much fun running and jumping and catching mad air on the beach with the wing that like <laughs> I'm here at my resort, you give the kids a wing and like they're jumping off the dunes and running down the beach all day and like towing each other, like five of them running with a leash as like the smallest one is like getting lifted in the air on like the seven Oh. And yeah. these kids will spend, have, they have so much fun on the beach with it that they, they develop really good wing skills before they hit the water. And then the, the sub 100 pounders, like there's so much upward pull and they're hanging from it so much that the foiling part becomes very easily because they don't really have much weight on the board and they're supported so much by the wing. So I think the fact that it works so well, like it just works way better and way easier for an under hundred pounder than it does for a 200 pounder to learn. And if the kids can learn it that easily, then we're going to see the, the sport grow. Cause if we're just relying on adults to persevere through, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a hard push, but the fact that the mm -hmm. physics of it works just five times better for under hundred pounder than it does for a 200 pounder means that the kids can actually learn it quick enough to really increase the numbers. That's a really interesting thought. And I think you're totally right on that. And combined with the fact that the wing is so light, so the kids can actually mm -hmm. use it and lift it up and it's so much safer than windsurfing or kiting um yeah totally i hadn't thought of it like that but that's a very good point very, like very it's, good it's point. pretty funny we got this uh like one of my proteges down here uh a little mexican kid that uh you know i've uh, he's been my little protege since forever he learned to windsurf and then we wouldn't let him wing for a while and then we let him wing and now he's like doing 720s and backflips and stuff but uh you know <laughs> he'll he'll that's do it you know i got he's got tons of little tiktok videos of him and it's the same thing for like Chris, Chris McDonald's like, you know, yep. are you best in the world? Right. And he's yep. down here with us all, all winter. And, um, and both of them, you know, this little kid and Chris McDonald, if you go and look at their Instagram sites, like either of them doing a 720 gets like eh, a few hundred views, right. Either of them jumping off of a dune with a wing gets like 3 million views. It's insane. <laughs> Seriously. Like literally, literally Julian Cito's little video of, of jumping off the dune right here in front of the place. He got a million views in like a week. Whereas like I can shoot him with a drone, super sick doing a 720. And it's like, I don't know, a couple hundred or something. But like the the interest out there that that is generated in the TikTok Instagram world from I, I don't know what it is, it just it just looks way more doable jumping off a dune or people yeah, can relate totally. to it more than they can anything on the water. But I mean, yeah, go like for hmm. everybody listening to this dude, go to Chris McDonald's 
Instagram page and look at the number of views on any of his like absolutely amazing, you know, on water tricks and then go look at the ones where he's jumping off the dune. It's just like, it's night and day. It's insane. Yeah, I think you Maybe. hit the nail on the head there. It's two different audiences and that's, uh, if, if winging wants to pass that chasm and go away from a French sport, it needs to hit that audience that the dune people are. That's how it's going to happen. Totally. You think it's just fear or something, or people will allow themselves to go kind of so far, and then, and then that's better as far as my limit will take me. Might be something like that. People always want to fly. Yeah, people want to fly. I think it's just more <laughs> relatable, right? Like riding a high foil totally. on the open ocean is less relatable than you know. I mean, is there any kid out there that hasn't gone to the beach and run and jumped off a dune, right? And wish they had like a Mary Poppins umbrella to do it a little bit better. You know, I, I think mm. it's just it's relatability, right? Totally. Yeah, there's just too too much disconnect when you see somebody flying around on this like tiny little thing above the water. It's like, why are they in the air? Like what's happening here? With the with the wing, you're just like, Yeah, big umbrella, why not? Looks cool. But at the same time, like that whole jumping off the dune thing is progressing so much that it kind of makes me cringe because I'm like, oh my gosh, when is somebody going to get severely injured doing this? Like, totally. Because, and at some point it's, it's hang gliding, right? Like where do we draw the line? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I've seen some videos of kiters like spending minutes up in the air doing basically that. And you're right. Like when is somebody going to get hurt doing that? Cause yeah. when is it, basically is it, what is it kiteboarding? And when is it paragliding? Right? Like it's, this, it's the exactly. same thing here with the wing. Like at what point is it jumping off dunes to the wing? And at what point is it hang gliding? <laughs> Especially in spotty wind, right? Yeah. <laughs> at, least, exactly. at least your wind there is pretty good. Um, how, how does it feel to work with all, like all the athletes and stuff at, at Slingshot for people working different kinds of jobs? Like, do you want to go a little bit into how much fun or how busy or how it is working your job? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely become more and more. I mean, Slingshot's been growing and expanding and, you know, it's taken over distribution in Europe this year. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's it, it's increasing. Like, it was easy in the beginning when we had, you know, two lines of wind foil boards and we had a few foils and then we had one or two lines. Of, we have one line of wings and one line of wing foil boards. And now when you see the the product offering explode, then my mm -hmm. job of, of, you know, working with the designers to, you know, to get the products going and then signing off on a million products that we're going to bring to market. And then, you know, there's a lot of steps and a lot of people involved in bringing a product to market. I mean, it's not like you just design the product and somebody tests it and says, it's fine. Like there, you know, you gotta create the website and write the copy and do the promotional material and the spec charts and you know videos about how it all works and everything. So as winging has really exploded and the product offering has exploded, the job's gotten a lot more intense. And then um, you know, hiring a lot more team riders and sending them all over the world to the the GWA is you know now eight, ten or more different stops, and there's. Uh, a lot more regional events. So, you know, as your product offering expands and the number of contests and riders expand, it definitely gets, uh, you know, to entail a lot more. Uh, working, it's pretty nice for me because I, I get to work remote and down here in Baja, like mm -hmm. one of the reasons I think I'm, I'm kind of valuable to those guys at Slingshot is because I hang out with our 
target consumer every day. Like I have 20 to 25 new wingers coming to stay and live with me here in Baja. And I get to see what products they shy away from, which products they gravitate to, what makes it easy for them, what makes it hard. Um, so I really, you know, it's easy to be in the industry and, and have all the products in the world at your fingertips and lose sight of, of the consumer and what the consumer's preferences are. Whereas mm -hmm. down here at the resort, I literally live with the consumers and we have an open bar. So they're on the water all day and down there helping them. And then we have an open bar and I'm just listening to all their excitement, all their grievances, what little things annoyed them or they had problems with. And that really gives me just a clear idea of what products we need in the market, what, you know, features help the consumer and don't, you know, it, it it's, it's not always super clear to people deep in the industry, you know, it, mm -hmm. it really helps to step away or have this this connection that I do with the with the consumer. But I mean, at, at Slingshot, it's really fun. I mean, we've got, I think, a little bit different than a lot of companies. We've got kind of three uh, three different departments, right? So we've got I'm like supposed to be the marketing guy, and we've got a marketing department, right? And then you've got we call them DNS, design and supply. So these are the guys that you know take a product, run with it, get it produced overseas, get the graphics right, um, you know, you know, work with the designers and the suppliers to, to bring a product to market. But then we're also really fortunate to have, you know, our mad scientist, Tony Lagosh, and now he has a team of, of young, super talented CAD engineers that used to work for Bell Helicopter, uh, Gabriel's one of them. And okay. And they're the, they're R&I. So we have marketing, design and supply, and R&I is research and innovation. And the research and innovation department is headed by Tony. And they're just supposed to work three or four years in the future and come up with stuff that probably the market's not ready for just yet. And that's one of the issues is a lot of times they'll bring a product that like the market is not totally ready for, like our dart wing, right? Like our dart wing came out. And I was all hyped on it because it jumped to the moon and was super fast. But, you know, the market wasn't actually ready for that yet. Everybody just wanted to go slow and barely fly. Um, yeah. but it's, it's fun to have this trickle from the research and innovation department working on ideas three or four years in the future. And then when they get a concept that's, you know, they can prove to us and show to DNF, design and supply, um, you know, this really works. Then we can bring that through design and supply and into marketing and, and bring it to the future. So it's fun to see those guys work on projects that are, that are out there. Sometimes they're really far out there and you're like, no way are we bringing that to market right now? But uh, a got, lot of times they, they do a great job. Well, just, just like winging though, right? Like, and it's crazy to see how quickly those things can develop, especially in a new sport. Remember that, I feel like there was a six month period where winging went from a kind of like a surfing sport solely to a full-on aerial freestyle sport. And it, that must have been so crazy in your position to look at that and be like, whoa, what are we doing gear-wise? Like, what are people going to need mm. now that people are doing backflips? What are they going to need now that they're doing 360s and 720s? Like, that must have been nuts. Yeah, I mean, it was I mean, it was our guy, right? I mean, uh, Jeffrey Spencer was working closely with Tony. They developed the dart, and that was the first backflip. You know, it was before Kyle Lenny did it. Jeffrey Spencer did the first backflip and it was really, it was really the shockwave that kind of rippled through the whole industry and was like, 
holy crap, I guess this is a real sport. Because even for me, you know, I was, we, we made like the two sling wings, uh, the, the original version one, there was like a three meter and a four two. And I had that infinity 76 front wing. And I was like, man, I need like so much wind to make this thing going. And when I learned it, I mean, I, we were riding my first one eighties and three sixties were on a seven foot six, you know, sup paddle board with foot straps and like this little four two and the infinity 76. And, and it was just like, everybody in the industry was kind of like, is this really going to be a thing? Like we're making the equipment and stuff, but like, is it really going to be a sport? And then the second Jeffrey Spencer did the backflip and like landed clean, everybody in the whole industry and pretty much the world was like, oh, oh, now it's a real sport, you know? And then like a week later, Kai Lenny teamed up with him and they filmed that video of like Kai Lenny, you know, Kai Lenny doing the, the backflip, um, but which was super cool. Kai Lenny, like Kai Lenny's like, I'm not going to just like do it and claim that I was the first one to do it. Like brought Jeffrey Spencer into the video and they're like both doing the backflips. Um, super cool of Kyle Lenny, but like, that was literally the moment when everybody in the industry who was, you know, I mean, it's my job to promote the dang sport. And I was still, I don't know, like, (laughs) is it really a sport? And then he does the back (laughs) and everybody's like, Oh, yep. That's it. It's It's sport. (laughs) (laughs) We're on boys. Let's do it. I'd be, I know we've kind of chatted for a while now. I don't know. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I'd be really curious Mm -hmm. to hear uh, on that note, where do you think this is going next? And if there's anything you can share with us about that mad scientist department, like what are they cooking up or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, uh, where's it going next? I mean, that's first we have to jump that chasm, right? Otherwise we're just kind of cannibalizing our own money, right? Like, you know, you have five grand to spend on a wind sport this year and you're a kiter. And if you spend that on wing gear and you don't spend it on kite gear, it's all the same companies and no one's making any more money. Right. So we really Mm -hmm. do pull in new people. We can't just cannibalize one of our, you know, markets of kiting to give the money to the other hand. Like it doesn't really, doesn't really work out. So, um, you know, if it's really going to jump that chasm, that's going to be huge. Um, the wings have to get better. Like mm-hmm. if you're looking at a windsurf sale or a kite from, you know, I mean, a windsurf sale from 85 or a kite from 2000, like they're pretty poor design and compared to a kite now. So, I mean, I, I still think that the wings have a long way to come um yeah i agree that's gonna that's gonna change a lot the the weird thing is like we can't just make it a fixed wing right because that takes away all the so much of the beauty of the sport is the simplicity that just pumping it up and fitting in a small bag no assembly yep. required right whereas like you know you can see the kylani video where he's riding the fixed wing and trying to hit new speeds like at some point it kind of has to go that direction in the racing department to really, you know, be America's cup fixed sales. You know, I mean, that's, that's where you really make those, those performance gains, but for winging, it's going to be hard because the beauty of winging is the simplicity. So the second you walk away from the simplicity, you do the same thing that happened to windsurfing where it was this beautiful one board, one sail, everybody can play on a lake to it's not cool at all unless you're riding a tiny, tiny board and, you know, flying off the lip. So it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say exactly where it's going to go. I mean, I'd like, I can't imagine that why we don't have 
double luffs and I've got the guys working on, on double luff sleeves. But if you look at windsurfing, like a double luff sleeve just means like the wing, right? Like that big old tube, um, the big tube. And then the transition to the canopy is not a very aerodynamic profile. Like you don't see an airplane with a giant tube and then like, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Right. And so in windsurfing, when the the racers developed that double luff sleeve where they really did smooth out that profile from the mast into the uh the canopy if you will to make it look like a windsurf or like a an airplane wing like that changed everything you can't compete without that so um i think we're definitely going to see double luffs happening in the wing to really smooth out that profile and make it uh you know make it an airplane wing instead of an old windsurf sale. So I think that really we're going to see a lot of, a lot of change in wing in the next few years. And, you know, when you get to, to 2030, you know, the wing, you're going to look at the wings we have now and just be like, Oh gosh, I can't believe we rode that back then. <laughs> <laughs> How did we like that? And I guess handles too, eh? Like handles have already come a long way. Like, how are you finding a little bit about those new hard handles and stuff? You loving them? You liking the, uh, the, kind of material handles that you had before or what do you, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, there's still, still a bit of personal preference. I mean, yeah. um, but it's pretty hard to argue against, it, you know, it was, it was so funny because uh, uh, as, so like, as we went from the, the Slingwing V1 to like the V2 version, like that, that first initial transition, um, in wings it was like oh my gosh it's got to be lightweight so you can luff it and like it's all about lightweight 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 and everybody's publishing the numbers on weight and then a year later nobody gave a damn about the weight of the wing right it was it was all about power performance stiffness a big enough leading edge diameter to really be stiff and and locked in um and we've seen that weight conversation pretty much disappear like i would rather have a hard handle with a little more weight than uh than a soft handle um the soft handles can be a little bit less fatiguing you know and it and it does provide like it's pretty hard because it does provide like kind of that cushy ride like it's less mm -hmm. direct and less you know jarring and it kind of self-regulates a little bit as you're when you're learning when you're kind of that like low intermediate stage to have uh the soft handles, it's like having good suspension in a Cadillac. But then at that absolute beginner stage, you're so worried about keeping the wingtips out of the water that being able to roll your wrists up to keep the wingtips mm. out with the hard handles is so valuable. So, mm. and then when you're talking about backwinding performance, you know, I feel like that's something we're going to see be really important in this next year because while the average user may not be able to do an Air 360 or a backflip, they're all going to start carving around downwind and doing a carving 360 and learning to ride backwinded. And it's undeniable that being able to push against those handles makes that a lot easier than, you know, I mean, oh, doing yeah, the back, fair I used to put my hands inside the handles and hold up directly onto the strut to do like the, you know, the backwinded air 540 thing. So I think that hard handles are going to become more and more of a thing uh boom is is gonna stick around i think that you know having an option to do boom or handles is really gonna be important in the future but i i definitely think handles is just makes sense can you imagine windsurfing right. with a floppy boom like like just <laughs> soft? 
Oh, my God. Oh, awful. Totally. <laughs> and you, what do you think about the Alula-style materials and stuff like that? I've kind of, mm-hmm. you know, to me, in terms of performance, I feel like that's the obvious next step. But at the same time, we're starting to walk away from that, you know, simplicity and relatively affordable and stuff like that. So what do you think, how that's going to play out, do you think? Yeah, the Alula, um, you know, we've we've just seen a lot of, like, seam creep and where the, the seams are pulling away with the Hukipa and the Alula and uh, especially the Alula, like after a year, you just start to see those, the seams creeping more and more. Um, mm. To me, the problem is, is that um, with, with a super stiff Alula, great. Like you can totally feel the difference in the stiffness, but also you could just pump up your wing a little bit stiffer and get you know basically that same performance it is a little bit more more stiff but a brand new wing and the stiffness of the canopy material in a crisp new wing and the stiffness of everything is huge and so if you've got this alula that you just paid like double for but your canopy material is going to fatigue and stretch out and get baggy in four months to a to a year then mm-hmm. you just paid all this extra money for fancy Alula, but once your canopy wears out, you're not reaping the same benefits. So I'd rather replace my wings more often and not have Alula than pay like double for Alula, have my canopy wear out just as quick and then not reap the same amount of benefits there. And then the seam and the the difficulty in for anybody to actually repair your your wing when it's Alula, like our our repair guy here in town can't stand the Alula. Right? It's so hard to to work with to do repairs on. Um, so I feel like the Alula is great, but it needs to be matched with a, a longevity in the canopy. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think totally agree. to to buy Alula right now when the canopy material is is all basically the same and has about the same lifespan before it bags out. I I, I would far prefer replacing my wings more often than buying a fancy. Okay. Like I run the Canadian Wingfall Classifieds there on Facebook. It's like we have 1,500 people across Canada now, like on that used market. And initially it just exploded. It flooded. Everybody was posting gear left, right, and center. And then it went through a, a big quiet period. Now people are starting to join again. They're starting to chat again. They're starting to get more gear posting. But I think it was like, what was it, last? Something like last summer to last fall, it just went dead. Like everybody who was switching over used stuff kind of, stopped but now it's starting back up a little bit it was it was a crazy everybody was dumping their gear right away you had it for six months dumped it but then yeah it kind of just stopped and and i ride for kt from my my buddy owns dirty mermaid water sports out in vancouver island he was like yeah used markets flooded now curious to see what's going to happen next but yeah i mean that that uh the step down in boards happening so fast right like yep it makes sense or a lot of people come down to my resort because they're like, okay, I learned to ride last summer on 120 liter board and I, I need to buy a new board, but do I buy a 90 liter or can I come down to your resort and, you know, get on the 90 liter right away, ride that for four days, drop to an 80, ride that for two days and get onto the 60 liter that I dream about. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, cause there's not that much like demo and kind of rental opportunity in North America. So, you know, you're, you're going to see people. And and the truth is like, yeah, once you get off that 120, you can drop like sizes in a week, right. Of your board. So you're going to see a lot of people, 
you know, selling used boards as they, as they drop down in size this summer, because it does happen so fast, right? Like once you got, once you got the 120 figured out, it's going to be like a week on a 90, three days on an 80, and then you're on the 60, you, you know. No, fair enough. Yeah. I saw that myself. Like you're, I think it was 150, 105, 80, now just on a 72 because I'm in cold water a lot of the time. And I, ju I just don't feel like sinking. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but if you get out in warm water, then yeah, obviously like 60 or below. Uh, what's your favorite setup for yourself? For myself, um, I usually use uh, like a 70 liter board. I use the Wingcraft V2 70 liter. And uh, we really switched you know, from the V1 to the V2, from V1, it was all about like the chine rails and the ease of touchdown. And then it, we really moved in, in the V2 to basically the same concept from the windsurf foiling, which is like, it's all about flat bottoms, hard rails, uh, you know, being able to get to planing speed the quickest and then being able to, to touch down, especially if you're doing a trick, like touch down and just pop right back up because there is no chines, the bottom's super flat. It just wants to rebound back on the foil really quick. Um, okay. so yeah, I'm using that's the 70 liter pretty much every day down here. And then, uh, I like the javelin boom wing. I'm a windsurfer. So I like being able to move my hands everywhere and ride one handed and, uh, just the control you get with the boom and be able to whip it through the wind. Um, and then foils, I mean, I, I kind of use it all and I'm, I'm not super into the, the really high aspect. I think it's funny. We like saw the whole industry is like, you gotta go high aspect. And then now all the brands are coming out with this like mid aspect. Um, which we've been mm -hmm. with for a while and it's just the mid the mid aspect gives you kind of the best of both worlds right you get that like early takeoff you have you just know how it's going to stay under your feet in a carve you just know it's really dependable um and so that mid aspect for me like our glide series at slingshot are these these mid aspect wings you know i'm either using like a 900 or square centimeters or a uh 1200 square centimeters but uh okay yeah that the mid aspect the 70 liter and the boom wing are, is is my go-to oh awesome man. Right. awesome and, and how much how much do you weigh in why that way people can kind of compare that to yeah. what they're uh, living with i like to say 200 but it's probably more like 210 <laughs> okay Cool. Man, the so tacos anybody, down there are just too good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. dropped some weight when we have less Pacifico and less tacos. You know, you go back up to him. Yeah. Pretty funny. Um, Man, I was, uh, we were having this chat on a, on a uh, Facebook group or Facebook uh, messenger group a little while back. And I was kind of advocating to start a class action lawsuit against Kyle Lenny because ever since he put up that foiling video of him double dipping, it completely changed my physique. I just started windsurf foiling and I got fatter and then I got into winging and I got fatter and it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I remember you telling me that it's like, man, it was like, cause I hadn't started yet. And he was like, Luke, I said, man, it's like no exercise at all. I said, come on, it looks like it's something, but then it's soon to get going. I'm telling you, bro, you got to get some pushups in there in the Caribbean, take yeah, that shirt off and terrible. push up on that deck. We started to see the uh, some of the bumper stickers in Hood River that just say hydrofoils make you fat. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It is. Oh, they're not wrong. Get back on the windsurf. They're not wrong, but they're so Austin. fun. They're so damn fun. <laughs> nice, man. Well, hey, Wyatt, I just want to say thanks for joining. Uh, thanks for chatting with us. I really do appreciate your time. We want to give a little bit of a shout out to Max Robinson. I know you just started with you guys. He's a really good buddy of ours. 
And uh, we've been riding windsurf with him in Toronto forever at some of our favorite spots. I just wanted to showcase him a little bit, but um, thanks for taking the time out of your day to chat with us. Yeah, Max is the man. I've just sent him from New Zealand to Cabo Verde, and now he's in Lucat, France. I mean, uh, all I get is the bills. I don't actually get any of the fun. But, uh... <laughs> you have no idea, life. though, like, like how much like Max had, had been just so much in love with wind and he had been just working so hard at it. It's really nice to see from our community to see that, to see him kind of get out and do that on the big scene. It's been awesome to watch. Yeah, man. He's traveling the world Love on somebody her. else's dime. That's the dream. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that is. <laughs> no, it's good. He's Absolutely. the best guy, man. He's so good for all the, he was down here yep. with us for a couple months this winter and it's so good with all the, the kids on the beach and pushing everybody. Yep. Yeah. It, Max, Max is the man. I'm a little jealous, but it's okay. Yeah. No, he's good looking. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> cool guys. Well, Hey man. Thanks for joining. And um, maybe when we get some new stuff coming out your way, we can have you back on. Absolutely. Yeah, Pleasure to time, guys. Perfect. Thanks for joining Tom and I on this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time.